0: Well, hey, good morning. Thank you guys for uh, braving the uh, last blast of winter out there and the uh, time change this morning. Uh, True confessions, uh, I've been praying for snow all week this weekend. Our kids are at winter camp and um, maybe we overdid the prayer. I don't know, but um, I'm, I'm glad they have snow. They're up near Traverse City. Can you put that picture up? So just... Something I want to point out in this picture, people will sometimes ask us, well, as a non-denominational church, are you guys just independent? You do whatever you want to do. And uh, we've never desired to be independent. And uh, what we have in this picture is that's our high school and junior high kids. We've got about 200 kids at camp. There's a little over 500 kids up at Lake Ann this week from churches that we partner with in Michigan. Those include the two churches that we planted in uh, one in Fremont and one in North Muskegon. And it also includes two churches that we often will partner. And these are the guys that we call when we've got questions and they call us. That's Redemption's Church by Grand Rapids and another harvest up in Traverse City. And it's interesting for me when I see that picture because those 500 kids in the room between our church and our two church plants, over 400 kids from those three churches are represented up at camp. And it was just 10 years ago that... um, well, we started a youth group here. There were six high school kids. Well, there were five. We let a college kid come because we had no other ministry for him. So there was, there was five, and you know, you're praying to see what God's going to do with this little thing. And I would just say that picture is a reminder to me that sometimes God can exceed our expectations. Keep that in mind even this morning as we talk about marriage. Back at the beginning of COVID, um, my wife looked at me and said, hey, how about we finish that? Um, book we were talking about writing on marriage and when she said finish her chapters had been done for over two years and uh, there were some other chapters that needed to be written so I took some time during the beginning of COVID we finished a book and a project that we'd been working on for some time called the marriage wheel many of you are familiar with it we've gone and uh, through it in soul care we've gone through it in premarital and marital counseling if you've been in those we've done conferences here at the church in the past I don't want to take a ton of time going through the specifics of it. But I do want to at least remind you of the concepts. We use this idea of a marriage wheel or a wheel as an illustration of how God designed marriage to operate, um, how he designed oneness to function. And basically, it doesn't just describe the roles that are given to husbands and wives in the marriage, but it gives a little bit of the explanation that we see in scripture as to why. Husbands, are called, and we just summarize it with three words easy for guys to remember love, lead, and learn. The two words love and lead, you're going to see that in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Um, that word learn comes from 1 Peter 3, where it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a um, weaker vessel, because she is joint heirs in grace, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So looking at those things like love, lead, and learn are three of us commands that would summarize what the husband is called to do. Wives are called, and we did it with three words that begin with F, fan, finish, and follow. That word follow, we're going to be looking at that today. That word fan is also in the text today. It says live with your husbands in a respectful way. And then that word follow is taken from Genesis, or finish is taken from Genesis 2 where the wife is called to be a helper. Now, the purpose of this illustration is not just to define how marriages to operate. really the heart behind this book was what do we do to help marriages that are struggling Any desire to print this book was born out of what we were seeing in the counseling room and a heart for struggling marriages. The way the illustration works, just so you understand, we believe that men and women are different. men tend to be wired for significance. Women tend to be more wired for security. And what we found is if you look at the roles that God assigned for the husbands, when a husband loves his wife, when a husband leads his wife, when a husband is learning his wife, he's putting in that type of time and effort, it makes his wife secure. When a wife is secure, she's more um, likely or more willing to follow his leadership, to be his biggest fan to be his helper. When a wife is being her husband's biggest fan, when she is following his leadership, that increases his significance, which makes it easier for him to love his wife as Christ loved the church and to lead her and to learn her. And so you get this positive traction when a marriage is functioning the way that it should, and the husband is doing what God's called the husband to do, and the wife is doing what the wife has been called to do. Now, in the middle of that, you see that big word, God? Just a reminder, wives, at the end of the day, your security comes from the Lord. Husbands, your significance should come from the Lord. That's primary. That should be the center of your marriage. You can't put the weight of your security, wives, on your husband. Men, you can't put all of your significance on, the weight, uh, on your wife. They weren't meant to carry that responsibility. But in horizontal relationships, in this most important relationship, the role that is given to the husband and the roles that are given to the wife are meant to feed the basic needs of both spouses. That's how God designed oneness to work. But here's the truth. And hopefully you see this on the screen. um, There's some nails that come about in life, right? And there's some difficulties that can be job changes moving to different parts of the country, things that put stress on marriages. It can be illness. It can be children. It can be a myriad of different things. Marriages sometimes, though they're supposed to roll and these roles kind of feed the progression, sometimes that wheel stops. I would argue that sometimes it can even go backwards. And I understand in this room that not every marriage in this room is thriving. There's that wouldn't be the words you'd use to describe it. Some are hanging on and some are, well, the wheel's just not moving. So the goal today is to open God's word and to look in Ephesians 5. We'll be picking it up in verse 22. Exactly what God's word says about marriage. Now, now please. Um, understand. I didn't give that review of the marriage wheel because I'm hoping to sell you books at the end. I'm not hawking books, I promise. But if you don't have a copy, there are some at the welcome table. They're free. Just take one. Um, If we run out, we'll get more copies printed up in the next couple weeks. But they're there if you have more interest in what I just described in like five minutes, taking a little bit more time and understanding it. So as we go to Ephesians five, here's what I would say just kind of as a warning. Some of the things that I'm going to say this morning are well, I was going to say culturally controversial. Uh, that's not exactly true. They're absolutely dismissed in our culture. Some of the things that are taught in Ephesians 5, our culture would say it's archaic. It's misogynistic. It's outdated. It doesn't apply anymore. It's met with venom outside the walls of this church. I would argue that even within the walls of churches in our community, um, our churches are really wrestling with what to do with Marriage. Denominations are struggling what to do with same-sex marriages and how marriage is supposed to function and how we apply this teaching from 2,000 years ago to today's context. But please understand, when I go to Ephesians 5 and I open God's word and look at his instructions for marriage, it's not controversial. It's clear. And it's consistently taught throughout the New Testament. If I were to take you to other passages, they align with this perfectly. So what's dismissed in our culture and argued about in our churches, because it's controversial, it's clear in God's word. And I hope our heart this morning is to basically take God's word and look at that timeless truth and try to apply it to our truthless times. The big idea, if you're keeping notes this morning, is this. Your second marriage cannot thrive until your first marriage is settled. Your second marriage cannot thrive until your first marriage is settled. Hopefully, I'll explain what that means during the course of this message. It doesn't mean that, well, I get that chance at a second marriage. No, that's not what I'm kind of driving at. Don't get your hopes up, okay? Three things, just to start as a reminder. God's design for marriage. I'm going to jump back into Genesis. The verses are going to be on the screen. Three reasons God designed marriage from the book of Genesis. Here's one, companionship. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, big takeaway from that verse. Men need help. Everybody agree? Men need help. There's a lot of baggage associated with that word Helper. Even in church and what we've grown up believing on that word helper, let me define that for you. I think it's significant. That word helper means this, to come alongside and make stronger. Tim Keller says that it implies that the helper has the power and resources that the one needing help doesn't have. It might surprise you that that word helper is used 21 times in the Old Testament. This is one of those uses as it relates to the husband and wife relationship. But out of the 21, 16 times, it refers to God. Psalm 121 says, I I shall lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's the same word. Marriage is designed for partnership, for companionship. Very interesting. This is before the fall. I'm reading from Genesis 2. Sin hasn't entered the equation. So even before sin crept into the equation, men needed a helper. It's for companionship. Here's the second thing, intimacy. Genesis 2.24, again, pre-fall, it says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There, this, this is beyond just sexual intimacy. It's the, encapsulating this, that each of us is born with a desire to be in deep, intimate relationships with someone else. We want to be known and fully known. And it's interesting in today's world with technology, and we're all so interconnected. And I'll tell you what, it's not making us better at intimate relationships, like a thousand Facebook friends and nobody knows you. We're designed for intimacy. And here's a third thing from Genesis 1. It says this, it's fruitfulness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Hey, men and women are not the same. God's words never moved on this all the way back from Genesis 1. The assignment of male and female is something that is done by the creator God. Now it's interesting, our culture can have variant opinions on this as we go through time. I'm just telling you what God's word is consistently and always taught. Men and women are different. It's interesting, 30 years ago in 1992, a guy by the name of John Gray wrote a book that was called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. CNN took that book and at the end of 1999, they were looking at the most influential books of the past 10 years and CNN, and I quote, said it was the highest ranked work of nonfiction. It was identifying all the different ways through sociological studies, how men and women differed. It was more than just Nurture. It involved the nature, how they were put together, how they were constructed. They respond to things differently. Listen, I've been married for 38 years. I have four daughters and six granddaughters. They're different. They don't think like me, okay? We're wired differently. And this has been accepted throughout the course of human history. But in the last 20 years, we've kind of absorbed this idea of gender fluidity that God doesn't decide, that we decide. And the idea is if we can make male and female homogenous, more the same, don't treat them differently, somehow that, that's moving society forward. It's nonsense. When we homogenize gender and make them and treat them exactly the same, we lose the beauty of both independently. One of the reasons for marriage is fruitfulness. It propels humanity forward. It was to produce offspring. By the time we get to Genesis 3, we can see that there's already huge impact on this marriage relationship due to sin. The first thing that we see is self-interest is introduced into the marriage equation. It says this, after man and woman or Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat, they're hiding. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam answered and said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? I think that's kind of funny. Like he's sitting there, he's hiding from the Lord because all of a sudden he's self-aware. He has self-interest. He's afraid. Guilt and shame have entered into the equation. And all of a sudden, more concerned Even with his relationship to God, he's very self-conscious of himself. He's become self-aware. Another thing that sin brings into the equation is the next verse. In verse 11, where God says, who told you you were naked? He goes on and says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, I love this. Look what the man says. Look what Adam says. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit to me and I ate. It did not take us long after sin to figure out the blame game, right? It's her fault. Worse than that, you gave her to me. So I'm blaming the woman. I'm blaming you. It's not me. Okay? Blame is entered in. And, and I would just say this put the marriage wheel back up just for a second, if you could do that. As we've used this through many different counseling scenarios with different couples, it's like nuclear power. It, it can work for good and it can be very, very dangerous. Husbands, as you look at the roles God's assigned you, and I put this illustration up there, and you're running through mentally in your mind how your wife is deficient in the things that God has called her to, if you're looking across the wheel at her side, man, that's a mess. That's not going to go well. And women, if you're looking and going like, man, I'd love to follow a husband. I just wish I has a husband who could lead. And husband, if you're looking at your wife and going, nobody could lead that one. Like, like, like if that's your attitude as you see the illustration, I'm just telling you, stay on your side of the wheel. You can't change your spouse. That's something that only the Lord can do. You focus on what God has called you to do. And, and don't be surprised if he uses that obedience and that faithfulness to do a work in The life of your spouse. Blame game. Here's a third thing. All of a sudden, there's role wars in the marriage. As as part of the curse to both Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis 3.16, he says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, so any idea of authority in the marriage is now corrupted because the husband goes into ruler mode and the wife has some contrary ideas and she struggles under the leadership of her husband, Genesis three nineteen, to the man it says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. All of a sudden, man has new challenges. Work is hard. Work is not always rewarding. Work is difficult. And all of his energies and all of his efforts are going into things outside the marriage and outside the home. And man will begin to look for significance outside of his marital relationship and all and outside of the Lord. And all of a sudden... All of this makes marriage anything but easy. If you're like, no, 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 I've been, I'm married. I think marriage is really easy. I could just, well, I just say to you, well, wait till year two, okay? Welcome back from your honeymoon. It's going to get difficult. Any idea that two humans with self-interest and sin natures are going to live together and that's going to be an easy adjustment? It's just not true. I've been married 38 years got married when I was 18 years old. 18. I was just a puppy, just a kid. And I'll tell you, there's been years of adjustment where it's been difficult. And though marriage is difficult, I could also look at, I would say this for myself, there's other couples in the room that would say, hey, I've been married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. It's worth it. Get this right now. Establish some boundaries and some patterns in your marriage, if you're willing to do things God's way, it's worth it. I promise you that God, just, just understand his character. He wasn't sitting up in heaven saying, hey, let's put these people in married, That's going to just drive them crazy. I don't think that was his heart. I think more likely is we've corrupted a good thing because of sin, because of selfishness. So if you want to understand how marriage was designed to work, we go back and look at what the designer has to say. We're going to jump in in Ephesians five, verse twenty-two. I'm going to start uh, with the role that is given to the woman, the most difficult role, that is submit. There's not a lot of on-ramp into this discussion. The text doesn't allow it. Ephesians five, twenty-two says this: "Wives, submit to your own husbands," says to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and, and, as, and is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just reading those verses, if you were to pick one word that would describe the role that the wife is called to, you see it in verse 22 and you see it again in verse 24. It's to submit. In a a world where everyone should be allowed to do whatever they want, that the individual is supreme, submission is not a very popular concept. A couple things. This this teaching doesn't just come at you in a vacuum. If you just look up a verse in verse 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of us, in some role, is called to submit. Maybe it's going to be masters or slaves to masters or workers to bosses or Church member to church leadership, or child to parent, or in the marriage context, all of us are called to submit in some context. It's unhealthy to live a life where you're not submitting to something. I'm just telling you, it's dangerous. In this case, so it takes us submit to one another, and then what happens this week and next week? It says, here are some of the organizations or structures of human life. Here's how it practically works in these settings. We're all called to submit. You understand submission implies disagreement. If you agree, you don't have to submit. You just kind of go along and both of you agree. It implies disagreement. And here's one of the things that I've learned. Two years ago this weekend, we shut down churches because of a pandemic. Every church in our community was closed two years ago this weekend. Feels like we've been in it longer than that, but it was two years ago this weekend. Hey, here's my takeaway from the last two years. Followers of Jesus Christ aren't often good at submission. That's my big takeaway. Church people are not great at submitting. They grumble, they complain. We're not good at it. It was revealed over the last two years. And I got to look at the irony of this, that you're going to look at this wife's submit. Husbands want their wives to follow their leadership, but that very husband, there's this irony. He complains about his boss. He complains about the government. He complains about his church leadership. And then he's like, I can't figure out why my wife won't submit, and I can't figure out why my kids won't obey. All of us are called to submit in some context. I've got to be careful. Please hear this. Submission does not mean that women are less valuable, intelligent, or capable leaders that men in general rule over women. This text is very specific. Wives, submit to your husband. Submission never allows for abuse or mistreatment. Wives, if there's a husband in this room who is being abusive to his wife, call the cops. There's other authorities that God has established to deal with situations where the authority is misused in the home. Here's a third thing about submission. Submission. Jesus only calls us to do what he was willing to do for us. Jesus submits to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. We see submission throughout the Trinity, though all parts of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. We see submission in the roles that they assume. Here's what submission means. The Greek word there is a word called hupotasso. It's a compound word. It means to um, place yourself under the best way that I could describe this, I'm going to talk about this more when we get to the husband section, is the wife in submitting, she is yielding tie-breaking authority to her husband. And I'll tell you what, I think throughout this text, this is the hardest um, command in the text for wives to submit to their husbands. Do you know what makes this command, this wife submitting to husbands, so hard for wives? Husbands. wives. At best, every wife in this room is married to an occasional idiot. The only difference is how, what's the occasion that triggers it. For some, it's, it's rare. Maybe it's seasonal. For other guys, it's like weekly. Some of you are occasional idiots every time the sun rises. We're just all occasional idiots. And, and quite honestly, one of the challenges for me, when we do a marriage conference, I'm not talking about submission. Kristen teaches that. I just step out of the way. One of the things, I can't make a convincing argument to the wives in this room of why you should submit to your husband. I can't make it. The text makes it for me. Wives, submit to your husband. you see what it says next? It says to the Lord. Your husband might not be submiss- or, or, a will- or a worthy of your Submission of following his leadership, but your savior is. But your savior is. The text is clear as to the Lord. It's interesting. Verse twenty-two: Wives submit to your husbands. Says to the Lord. Verse twenty-four: So as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit. Verse twenty-four, five: Husbands love your wives. Says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as Christ loved the church, we are members of one body. That's verse twenty-nine. In chapter 6, this is next week, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 5 of chapter 6, bond service, obey your earthly masters. And it goes on to say, as you would Christ. In all of our earthly interactions and relationships, our eyes always look through the other person, the authority figure. And we say, we're going to submit to them as we would Christ. This has nothing To do with your spouse. It has everything to do with your Savior. It has nothing to do with your boss. It has everything to do with your heavenly master. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, I looked at some of this this week and I was surprised at how much teaching I found on this in the Old Testament over and over our relationship to our heavenly father the church is referred to the bride of christ his people are called the bride of christ man i don't like no like i'm not all that comfortable being referred to as the bride in the relationship get over it we're the bride of christ and what happens in this text it's really interesting if you were to look at verse 32 this says this, verse 31, is quoting from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So earlier, we went over three reasons from the Old Testament for, from Genesis of why God gave us marriage. And we looked at companionship and intimacy and fruitfulness. This mystery, that word mystery means something revealed now that wasn't revealed beforehand under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying is there's another purpose for marriage that goes beyond companionship, fruitfulness, and intimacy. It's the gospel. This Your marriage is a testimony. It is a witness for the gospel and the love and the care of our Savior. And that's not just an external witness. It is also internal. As you do the roles that you're called to do, both men and women in marriage, you are going to better understand the heart of your Savior towards you. Our first marriage is to the Lord. And you won't get your second marriage To thrive until that thing, that first relationship is settled. There are women in this room who would say, I'm going to struggle or I will not follow my husband's leadership because I don't trust him, because he's proven to be untrustworthy. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord in these things. So, so you're telling me that even if my husband isn't following the Lord, that I should submit? 1 Peter 3, verse 1 says it this way, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, hear this, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you're respectful and pure conduct. You will not change your husband through an unyielding, unsubmitting attitude. And there are women in this room that are desperately praying that God will change their husbands. Because their husbands need to change. And I would suggest to you that if you're not willing to do the things that God has called you to in your role as wife. You're actually getting between your husband and the Lord and God's ability to change him. God alone can change your husband's heart. And just before I move on, I want to get over to the men's side of the equation. There's more verses on men here than there are on women, but I'd just like to say this to all the single ladies, and now I sound like Beyonce, to all the single ladies, okay? Marry a man that you can follow. Marry a man that you can follow. Please understand when that guy's dating you, when, when I was dating my wife, I was on my absolute best behavior. Apart from the work of God, it's not going to get any better. I'm not going to get any better after I'm married because when I'm dating you, I'm trying to win you. Once I've got you, I'm probably going to loosen up, let you see the real me. Apart from the work of God, you're not going to be able to change your husband later. And here's what I would tell you. Make sure that if you have to yield to your husband, make sure that he's yielded to Jesus Christ. Let me say this as simply as I can. There's a loneliness that is more lonely than being alone. There's a loneliness that's more lonely than being alone. And that loneliness that you feel right now is way better than the loneliness that you will experience in a marriage where your husband is unwilling to love you and lead you as Christ loved and led the church. Okay, let me address husbands for a minute. I'm going to stay on this topic of submission just a second longer. Please understand this. Your wife's submission is given to you. You never demand it. Nowhere in Scripture are you given the authority to demand submission of your wife. She yields To you, she gives you her submission out of reverence for Christ. You don't get to ask for it. You earn it by the way you love and you lead her. And if you're going home and you're 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 running your house in that ruler position where it's like, submit, woman, you're playing that card, dude, you've already lost. You've already lost. If you think this leader and, and head of the home, as we're going to look at in some of the verses that refer to us, if you think that means you wear the crown in the house, please realize, according to the text, that crown you wear is a crown of thorns. Talked about this idea of tiebreaker in submission. Kristen and I were talking, we were having coffee yesterday morning. I knew I was preaching this, and it's like, what are the big things in our marriage, 38 years where where we've had a tie and I've made a decision that was really, really difficult for you. We couldn't come up with four. We came up with, we have dogs. She's not a big fan of dogs. We have dogs. I won that one. Okay? Calvin, when he was coming out of junior high, she really wanted him to go to Christian school. He ended up going to the public school. And I think that was one that was difficult for her. But as we look over 38 years of marriages, career changes, moves, raising three kids, adopting three more, having six kids in the house, college choices, all of these things, we can't come up with four times where we had a serious disagreement. I'm not a big fan of ties, I don't want ties. Which means that I believe that my wife has been given me to God as a helper. And if I can't convince her that the direction that I want to go is best for our family, I probably got to think it through again. Or maybe I've got to wait if I can delay the decision. I would also say, men, knowing, you know this in other relationships that you have to your boss and in different contexts, submitting isn't fun. It's not an easy thing to do. Here's a way to make it easier for your wife lose all the small battles. Lose them all. doesn't matter if you eat Chinese or get pizza. Don't go to war on the little things. This always happens to me the week that I'm preaching on marriage. Something like this will happen. Yesterday morning, I was at an elders meeting at 630. I came back home. I had to get a haircut. I was going to the haircut. I looked at my wife. I said, hey, what are you doing this morning? She goes, well, I was going to go get a pedicure with Catherine, but she's busy. She's going out to breakfast with somebody else. And as I walked out the door, I said, you want me to go with you? She said, sure, I'll wait. I got in the car, and I'm like, man, I hope she didn't miss the sarcasm of what I've just said. Like, in 38 years of marriage, I promise you I've never said, hey, let's go get a pedicure. That's never come out of my mouth. And I'm like, she picked up the sarcasm. I'm sure she did. I got home from my haircut, and guess who was waiting? My wife. To go get a pedicure with me. I don't get pedicures. So what do you do? Do you explain that that was sarcasm in the moment, that you should have been smarter than that? No, you get in the car. You go to the little pedicure place. You don't make eye contact with anybody else in the room. <laughs> you, wear, you wear a hood. You stay on your phone. There's ways to survive it. I'm just going to tell you that. Lose the little battles. Okay. Four words for husbands. I got to move. We're going to go quick. I apologize to the wives. I should have pounded the husbands harder in this section. I'll go quick. Four words. We're going to make this easy. Husbands, let me define that. You have a wife, okay? Love. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That word love is agape. It's a biblical term. It's a giving love, a selfless love, a sacrificial love. We define it just simply, you before me. This is the essence of marriage. It is a choice of the will. And I would argue that the call to love your wife as Christ loved the church is a greater act of selfless, selflessness than even her submitting to you. Has Christ loved the church? How did Christ love the church? Well, he loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were shaking our fists while we were still sinners. He loved us by taking our sin in our place. He loved us by going to a cross for us, getting beaten for us, giving his life for us. The greatest act in human history of sacrifice for someone else is the cross, and that's what's held up as the standard that we should strive for, husbands, in the way that we love our wives. Love. Husbands love your wife, your wife. The husband who's saying, well, just because I'm married doesn't mean I, it's kind of like eating, just because on a diet, I don't have to, I mean, I can't look at a menu. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. Make your wife your standard of beauty. Don't let it attraction be your motivation and drive your lifestyle. And here's what that means. After you're married, you don't get to flirt anymore with anyone other than your wife. By the way, for some of you, you don't get to eat at no between May and September. Go there in February. If it's too tempting for you to drive by the beach, avoid the temptation. And don't develop friendships or relationships with other women, be it at work or in other contexts, that compete with the level of intimacy and closeness that you have with your wife. That's nonsense. It's dangerous. Husbands love your wives. And please understand, as you love your wife, I've hit on this before. Women are gonna be typically, allow me to stereotype or generalize a little bit, typically more um, emotional, typically more sensitive. My wife will pick up on little sing- signals and nuances with my kids or grandkids that I would never catch. Women are more emotional. It says, just if you look at studies, 75% of depression medicines are prescribed to women. Why do you think that is? They're more emotional because they bury the weight of all the brokenness and things spiraling out of control all around them and the deficiencies in the family life and in the marriage while the guy's too busy lifting the couch cushions looking for the remote. (laughs) We're different. Okay? And when it says that you're to love your wives, it's interesting. The text goes on and says this. Look at this in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of one body. Love, nurture, and cherish your wife. Hey, how do I do that? Well, here's here's an idea. Be there. Be there. You will not accidentally fall into intimate relationship and closeness and a tender relationship with your wife. That doesn't happen by accident. It takes effort. I've never met the guy who goes, yeah, I went golfing this morning and I came home and I was hungry. I went to the fridge, I ate lunch, I sat down, turned on college basketball, and man, it was crazy. All of a sudden, I was in this great, deep, intimate relationship with my wife. You're not going to stumble into it. Tenderness. Being there. Women typically their love languages tend to be uh, quality time and physical touch. And men, when I say physical touch, I'm not talking about physical touch that leads to sex. I'm just talking physical touch without that expectation. I think they call it cuddling. Okay? Why would I do that? Well, Wives are called to submit, husbands are called to love. You can't do it the way that you've been called to unless your eyes are fixed on Jesus. That's the command for both. Why in an individualistic world where culture says me getting what I want is the most important thing and nobody should stand in the way of that, would I lay down my rights? And submit to my husband. Why would I lay down my rights. And put my wife's needs above my own. There's only one reason that you would do it. It's because you understand the gospel. And that you have a savior. Who is willing to lay down his rights. His life for you. Let's pray. Father I thank you for your word. That's a very um, short explanation of a lot of profound truth as it relates to what you've called us to be as husbands and wives. Father, I pray for marriages that are struggling in this room. I pray for um, wives on the verge of tears. Father, restore hope. Father, remind us that when we choose to be obedient, when we choose to do the things that you call us to do, so often the results of that exceed any expectation that we could have. Father, for those who are in a season of waiting for you to show up, waiting for you to answer prayer, I pray that you would keep them focused on how they can love, lead, and learn their spouse because you were willing to love and to lead them. Father, we thank you for your word that it's timeless truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.